Mashiach now. Well, this week we are beginning Parsha Shmot. We are beginning the six weeks, I believe, of uh, Shobabim, which is Shemot all the way through Parsha Mishpatim. This includes fast and all sorts of other various uh, observances. Uh, it's also meritorious to take on a new name. Um, you're wanting to turn over a new leaf and uh, do lots of teshuva just for anything that you can think of. This is a great time of purification and uh, spiritual elevation and things of those nature. So what's really amazing about this is the fact that when you look at the time frame that we're in, we're between Hanukkah and Purim. There's a little stop at Tuba Shabbat, which is all about the, uh, the, the transitioning that we're getting ready for to go into the spring. Uh, this is also considered to be the new year for trees. So when you uh, plant your tree by Tuba Av, which is the 15th of Av, then uh, as long as it's been planted at that point, the following two of Shabbat, you will begin to count how old that tree is. This comes in handy when you are looking at when is it time to bring your ma'aser, your tithe, to the temple in the uh, fourth year of your tree. And then in the fifth year, you can enjoy the fruit uh, and things like that. Because, you know, for the first three years, any new tree that's planted, you're, you're not able to eat that fruit. So, but we just came out of Hanukkah and we observed Asera Betevet, which is the 10th of Tibet, which includes the 8th and the 9th and the 10th all together. So we combined them into one because it should be a three-day fast period. And I'm reading from Garments of Light, Volume 2, by Rabbi Ephraim Palvinov Shlita. He brings this down. Uh, this is on page, well, it begins on page 398, and it goes all the way through to page 403, really explaining uh, why do we fast on this day and things like that. And one of the big things is that Asera Batevit is considered to be General Kaddish Day, which is where we recite the prayer, the mourner's prayer for those who have passed away. It's really a prayer that's all about life, which is interesting since we're observing or commemor not commemorating, but we're acknowledging the fact that, you know, we have loved ones, family, friends, um, and, and just people who've passed away. And uh, this is a prayer that's all about life. So if you really look at the Kaddish and what it represents and the liturgy itself, it's very, very uplifting. So much so that you have to have 10 Jewish men together in order to be able to pray this prayer because there is a congregational response. And it's considered to be that when the congregation says that response, they fulfill the ultimate reason for our creation. Like the ultimate reason that we were created is fulfilled when we recite the Kaddish. And that's brought down by 
master plan also with uh, Rabbi Hirsch. He has a whole codification of Halakha called Horeb. And uh, when you look at those uh, sections on the Kaddish in there, it really brings that information down. It's also a great unifier because the Chazan, the, uh, the prayer leader, he leads it. He's the one who cants the prayers. He sings it beautifully, or he is the one who leads the prayer time. And he represents the whole entire congregation. He's called the Shliak Zibur, the messenger of the congregation. And the word Zibur being uh, a acronym, being an acronym for Zadikim, Benonim, and Reshaim which is Zadikim, righteous ones, Benonim, people who hang in the balance, people who are in between, and then Rashaim, people who are wicked, considered to be wicked. Remember, we don't call people Rasha because that's what Admor Yeshua taught, but there are many opinions on that. But basically, when you look at the righteous, those who are in between, and then you have also those who are considered to be wicked, if you think about that representing a, a congregation of people, that's really, really powerful. So much so that this really brings us back to Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, that if you don't have all three of those groups there, you're not really affecting the full the full uh, potential of that day itself. So much so that even extending it back to Rosh Hashanah, so from Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur, uh, you're looking at this this time frame of 10 days and you really want every single person in that spectrum. You really want them to be present and available to connect with Hashem. And so anyway, but the Shliak Hazibur, the messenger of the com congregation or the community, he represents all three of those people. And, you know, you, fi you find that uh, um, when you're reciting the Kaddish, like it's, it's very moving. And so to know that you can unify all of those people, it's just like, can we zoom out to the cosmic picture of this? Because there are people of different civilizations, different countries, nations, religions, languages, lifestyles, and in the third temple, that's all going to be brought together. Hashem says that this will be a house of prayer for all people. And it's a house. The third temple is in honor of Yaakov, who calls it a house. He called the place of prayer, the temple mount, Mount Moriah, a house. And there are so many things that really point to how the arrival of the Mashiach and the final end gathering uh, to bring us out of exile into the third temple, which is why we pray for this constantly three times a day for sure. But even more than that, you know, when we say Mashiach now, that's also connected to it. What should be connected to it and the original intention as it was recited was blessed is he who comes in the name of Hashem, which is the Baruch Habah B'Shem Adonai. Like when that was given, like you won't see my face again until you say that, that was really about, we need to get ourselves into a posture of repentance and returning to Hashem and preparing our hearts to 
return to God and, and do things that, you know, we would do during Rosh Hashanah and, and uh, Yom Kippur, the Aseret Hayamin, the uh, the 10 days of repentance, the high holy days, Yom, Yomim Noraim. There we go. The days of awe. So that's what the Shliach Hazibur represents. He, the Chazan, he represents the full spectrum of people. And, you know, Hashem showed himself as a Chazan to Moshe Rabbeinu. And that he said that this is how you are to approach me and asking for forgiveness. And this is from Exodus where we find the 13 attributes of mercy, which is recited all during this time frame of Elul through the end of Sukkot. Uh, there's a lot of times where we recite what is known as the penitential prayers, Slikot. And uh, it, the big part of the Slikot prayers is the 13 attributes. So all of that to say is we just finished Asera Betevit not, not too long ago. I mean, it's been a few weeks now, but... Um, which actually, if you really think about it, it's actually been less than two weeks. But uh, all that to say, I just want to pull up my calendar real quick. Because what is the current date? Oh, yeah, it was just a week ago. So just a week ago, we uh, we observed Asera Betevit. So... It's just uh, really amazing to think about where we're at now and this month and the different uh, energies and uh, the meaning behind Tibet and getting to the month of Shabbat and all of that. If you have wisdom of the Hebrew months, uh, any of those volumes of that book are very, very helpful to bring out a lot of what I'm alluding to that I'm not really going to get into because I don't have those sources in front of me. But um, in the garments of light, it also brings down that there were three things. On the 8th of Tibet, there was the fact that the Torah was translated into Greek. And because that was translated into Greek, page 402, yes, 402 brings this down. It says the Greek Septuagint, which is what happened when the Torah got translated into Greek which Septuagint means 70. It comes from the, the Greek word for 70 because there was at least 70 uh, sages that were put in separate rooms and they were all told by King Talmai. And uh, what century was that? Uh, Stand by. Talmai, third century. Okay. Yes. King Ptolemy the second Philadelphius. And this is around 284 to 246 BCE. And again, he's simply known as Talmai. And um, he was like, we need this Torah translated into a language that is very popular of our time. It's the Greek kingdom. So obviously the Greek language would be uh, preferred. So with that being said, the Greek Septuagint led directly to the Greek New Testament. So you may think 
The New Testament was originally written in Greek. There's opinions about it being in Aramaic and all of that. But what's interesting is Greek was a big part of it. And the Torah already was translated into Aramaic due to the Babylonian exile back during the days of Daniel and Mordecai, uh, the tail end of the life of Yermiahu, Jeremiah. Um, so, and uh, this is Ezra, Nehemiah, uh, Zerubbabel, which uh, he was in the lineage of David, uh, Hamelech, King David. And all of that to say is um, there's this connection with the Aramaic and the Greek uh, translation of the Torah. So this is considered to be unfortunate because when you leave the original language, you now have uh, a loss of in, uh, information integrity is the way I would put it. The integrity of the information is compromised because with the Hebrew language comes a, 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 a cultural understanding. Like in other words, the way we have what we, I like to call it anyway, jibe or uh, hood talk, you know, like getting crunk and turned up and those things like that. Well, that works in this language, in English. But if I was to say those same words in Spanish or say, which by the way, just a tangent on Spanish, there's a apparently a phrase that says, no quemaca, which means it don't burn. It doesn't burn. And it's used in the reference of uh, cars that basically are, they're not high in horsepower. They don't burn rubber, like when they take off. Like, in other words, they're not like sporty, super fast cars. So a minivan, you would be like, no chemica. <laughs> that is here nor there to people who don't speak Spanish. So it's just kind of like, wait, what? You know, uh, but you have to break it down. Same thing with saying getting crunk, get turned up. If I translate that into other languages, it's like, what are you trying to start or ignite, you know, like, are you needing to go somewhere, you know, so those things. So think about that on that simple of a level. It's way beyond and on infinite levels when it comes to the Torah, because the Torah has at least four levels. And actually Hasidus reveals a fifth level of interpreting the Torah. You have your simple you have your illusion, you have your, like the commentary, the, um, the survey collected, uh, interpretation, which is the drosh. This is where you, you seek it out and you kind of look for these different connections. You build on the previous two steps, which is you took the simple meaning and then you took illusion, which is the remis. And that's where you can find gematria, which is one of my favorites and other things like that. And then you have like your Midrashic sources, which look into the text and find the deeper meaning behind the text and the stories. You look at the grammar because there's like the way you read the word. There's the traditional way the word is actually read because sometimes when you come across a word in the Torah, it's written one way, but pr pronounced another way. And that's all connected to the tradition that was handed down. So when you take all of that away, you lose all of that. And it's so rich. But anyway, the, the step after the 
the searching and seeking it out, the the drosh level is the sowed, and that's the the mystical. This is these are things where you're just kind of like, what in the world does that mean? You know, like, um, for instance, a mystical part of the Torah where it talks about, um, for instance, how how do we know that the Torah tells us about the Messiah? which the Messiah is considered to be the deepest level of Torah because number one, the Messiah teaches us the deeper levels of Torah. That's number one. So to have a Messiah that doesn't teach you the Torah or that doesn't encourage you to even acknowledge the Torah, not just in reading, but also in doing, uh, that's problematic. <laughs> and uh, as a Avenger, that is one of the things I have to avenge. I don't have to do it. I, I don't even choose to do it. It's just that it happens because it's, what are you going to do? <laughs> um, I, I don't know any other thing that I could do because, you know, once you, once you know something, you're accountable to it. And as far as I know, Admor Yeshua taught, hey, you, you need to be on your Musar. You need to be on your Halakha. You need to be on your, your, um, you're from this, you need to be observant, you know, and you need to study. <laughs> so that's, that's a lot. But anyway, so where do we find all these mysteries and allusions to the Messiah in the Torah? Well, number one, what's up with the, uh, the seed of the woman will have enmity with the Nechash, the serpent. Like that's one thing. Uh, also, um, where do we find Purim taught in the Torah? Oh, I forgot to mention one of the most famous ones, Balaam, which is Bilam in Hebrew, Ivrit, is uh, talking about the Messiah like multiple times. A star shall come out of Yaakov, the scepter, and all of that. And that's all talking about the birth, the kingship of the Messiah and things like that. And it's just like he's talking about luminaries like what is that you know but anyway so let's go back to the allusion to purim like where do we find purim in the torah it talks number one about um, mordecai in the section of parsha kitisa which is the later part of exodus where it's talking about the different spices and um, so it mentions him there it mentions esther in the later part of Devarim and Deuteronomy, where Hashem says, I will surely hide my face in that day. Talking about when we're um, choosing sin, you know, choosing to not follow the will of Hashem and anchor it into our lives. <laughs> Pun intended, because I'm on anchor recording right now. But um, also an allusion to Haman, Haman. And uh, he's mentioned in Genesis 3, where it says, did you eat from the tree? Hamin Ha'etz is actually Haman Ha'etz, which alludes to the fact that Haman would be hung on a tree. Come to find out that Esther Rabbah says it was a tree of thorns. So Haman was hung in thorns. So that's interesting. But anyway... Uh, and Haman is also the same letters as Man, like the manna. So you have Haman and Haman, like the Man is, is manna. 
That's how you say manna in Hebrew is man. And we say man who? Like, what is it? You know, that was the question that was asked when Hashem rained this bread down from heaven. So just all these different things. Um, and there's a concept of uh, parts of the soul of different individuals. I know that just went there. Uh, Gilgalim, that's what I'm talking about. Some people are not okay with that. And you should know that's totally fine because within the realm of learning in Judaism is that studying Gilgalim is not required by the general masses. This is also part of the teachings of Kabbalah that were not revealed to the general masses for several different reasons. It's so easy to just get caught up and sidetracked and be like, that's reincarnation. That's da 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 da. But anyway, the reason why I mention this is because Purim is also shown between the story of Adam, Eve, and the serpent, being that it was Mordecai, Esther, and Haman. So originally, the serpent led away Eve to get her separated from her husband, Adam, which Eve in Hebrew is Hava. So Hava was basically uh, tempted by the Nechash, the serpent, separate from Adam. But if you look in the Purim story, Haman representing the serpent, again, this is a mystical teaching. This is some so teaching right now. So, uh, yeah, but anyway, um, so... Haman, serpent, uh, was basically trying to wipe out the Jewish people. And you have the very fact that Esther and Mordecai, the Adam and Hava picture, that they stayed connected and unified in order to be victorious over Haman. It was at the leading and the guidance of Mordecai that Esther even went into the king of Persia at that time to even begin to, to make a plea and to create uh, an opportunity for the Jewish people to be rescued from Haman. So you have this idea of Adam really coming back to uh, make right what was wrong in the first place. And instead of the serpent taking Hava away, it was actually... Adam bringing Hava in and then defeating the serpent. But that's a mystical level of teaching that, you know, you would never know about because you translated the Torah from Hebrew into Greek. So, and again, you lost all the traditions because it's just kind of like it's in Greek now. It has a whole different meaning. And there are some letters of Hebrew that don't translate into Greek, namely the letter Ayin. Which, again, if the letters of Hebrew are considered to be the letters of creation, because that's what we know about tradition, which means the DNA of creation, and the letters are also likened to the way the atoms are to physical creation. So if you start removing parts of yourself, your physical existence, um, think about the, the effects of that. <laughs> So when the Torah got translated into Greek, we lost a lot, but gained a lot because now it's more publicly exposed. 
However, at the danger, Will Robinson, of the fact that now, what about the traditions? What about the commentaries? What about the sages? And again, that's in Hebrew. That wasn't translated. <laughs> that's the oral Torah. That's handed down teacher to student, generation to generation to generation. This is why you should have a teacher for yourself. Because anytime you want to come up with your own thoughts and your own interpretations, you need to have a filter system. Like, for instance, I thought I had a really good source on um, the when did Moshe learn his true identity in Egypt? And I was like, oh, yeah, this will be so great. I can just like share this and uh, this will be really cool. But I have a rabbi. So I went to him and I was like, so. I think I have something <laughs> I would like to propose and if it's kosher or if it's not, you know, like, could you let me know? And surely enough, it was like, yeah, this needs investigation. <laughs> and so it's just kind of like, all right, take a step back, you know? So it's just, it's really cool when you think about all of these uh, balances, just checks and balances, you need to have those. Think about if the sun was just to shine and just do its own thing without ever having to set, without ever having to go through different seasons to where, you know, the rays of the sun don't affect the earth in the same way all throughout the year. And if the sun's just like, yeah, man, I'm just going to light it up. Uh, everything would be scorched and we would never get to go to sleep because the sun would always be up. You know, it's just kind of like all these different things. There's a there's a law and order. It's just so important which is another dangerous teaching that's connected to the ninth of Av, because the ninth of Av being the fact that the Greek Septuagint leads directly into the Greek New Testament, Greek New Testament. And again, I'm still on page 402 in Garments of Light. It says that what the sages feared when the translation of the Torah happened, which the Greek New Testament obviously did not come out a day later. Um, but this is down the line. This is just a, a series, a sequence. There we go. A sequence that happened over time. Because we're looking again at this third century to the first century. So about 300 years, which is so interesting because it was about 300 years after Yeshua and the Talmudim that we get the pretty much a pretty true face of uh, at least Catholicism and then obviously Protestantism to some extent uh, that we see today even. But that took a 300-year span. So within this 600-year period, 3rd century to 3rd century BCE to 3rd century CE, you got about 300 years uh, on, well, 600 years total of uh, progression here. So the creation of a new religion, which being Christianity, which really started before the destruction of the temple. And there was a lot that was dealing with uh, infiltrating Jewish communities to rip them away from the Torah and traditions. And this is one of the things, you know, uh, sadly, uh, there are people today who get pegged as this, and uh, this is not the true intention. Uh, there are many people who follow after Yeshua and they say that they believe in him as the Messiah and things like that, 
which is a whole nother thing because in order to know that Yeshua is the Messiah, he has to, he has to do things that he hasn't done yet. And he himself said, you know, this is not going to happen now. We're, we're going to have to get a sword. Things are about to get a little tough. So uh, put all your eggs in the basket of going out to all the nations and teaching them Torah, because that's in the Talmud. When you go into exile, you're going to be among the nations and you should be fruitful there, bringing the nations into Torah. That's one of many facets of exile. If you read The Future by Rabbi Hajiyaf, may he live and be well, he really does a beautiful spread on, is exile really a punishment for the Jewish nation? And it's like, no, it's way more than that. It's way deeper than that. And this is another reason why, considering Yeshua the Savior and Jews don't accept him, so they're not saved and they're destroyed and all this kind of stuff and they're just waiting on somebody else besides Yeshua and it's just kind of like well <laughs> that 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 becomes very problematic the point that I'm getting to is that um, this new religion is created based off of tearing away further from what was lost already with the translation so I'll end this segment here and uh, start a new one. Okay, so left off talking about the 8th and the ninth of Tibet, which would be the 8th being the translation of the Torah into Greek, the ninth being the creation of the new religion based off the fact that the Torah got translated into Greek. One of the things I did not get to read was this statement here. The sages feared that the Torah's translation into Greek, especially it being housed in the library of Alexandria, which was a major epicenter of learning of its day. Over 400,000 texts and scrolls were in this particular library from everywhere, like all civilizations in the, of the known world at that time. So it's just like, oh yeah, let's get that Torah. <laughs> Which is funny because Hashem went around to all the nations and being like, who wants the Torah? And then people were like, no, except the Jewish people who were like, yeah, we'll take two, you know? And it's just kind of like, uh, well, there's only one, but yeah, there are two because there's the oral Torah, which are the notes for the written Torah so that you understand how the written Torah works. But uh, yeah, sure, you can have it. And then come to find out later, that uh, Talmai is all over here like, oh, yeah, let's go get that. You know, let's bring that to the nations. And it's like, uh, had that opportunity before. How come you didn't do it? Side note, Purim represents the re-giving of the Torah because this is another time where the Jews re-accepted upon themselves that which they were forced, quote unquote, to accept. This one time in Exodus 19 and 20, God was giving us the Torah. He covered this mountain over our head and said, accept the Torah or this will be where you're buried underneath this mountain, which was, again, you have to know the tradition. You have to know the commentaries in order to get that, because that's obviously not written in the plain text, but the mountain was hovered over our head so that we would accept the oral Torah. We had already accepted the written Torah because we said, again, we will do, we will hear. Like, 
okay, we don't know what it is. We'll take it. But you have to have the oral tour too. You can't just say, I'll take the written without the oral. So Hashem was like, please take this part too. We're like, uh, okay. You know, and it's just like, okay, so the mountain didn't crush us, right? But during Purim, we were like, oh yeah, we take it all. We'll take the whole thing. And we reaccept it upon ourselves. And this is in Esther chapter nine. And also many nations around us at that time were really awe-inspired by the whole sequence of events that were going on with Purim at that time. And they also accepted the Torah. They became converts and things like that. So really, really big thing about uh, inspiring not just the Jews, but also the entire world to, to return to God and become new, become new creations. That's what a convert is, a new creation. A convert can even be a Jew, which is just crazy. You know, like this is connected to the blessing that uh, Rachel, our, our matriarch, gave to Joseph, you know, that he will make even an estranged son, uh, a, a true son. You know, like those who are far away, they'll, they'll be brought near. So all of that back to this point that because this Torah was translated and put in this library, the sages were fearful. And they said, now any person, even a non-Jew, could read it. There's this one thing called the Bible, like the Holy Bible. And I'm not talking about the Tanakh, because as a Jew, when you say the Bible, you mean the Tanakh. And go Google Tanakh and you'll see what that is. Okay, so that's the Bible. And that is what the men of the great assembly, you know, kind of pegged and finalized because really all you need is the Torah. But we have the prophets, we have the writings, you know, and things like that, that go alongside with that. So the Torah, the, the prophets and the writings is the acronym of Tanakh, Torah, Nevi'im, which is the prophets, and Ketuvim, which are the writings, and that's what's known as the Holy Scripture. So if you're reading, whether it be Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Revelation, or any of the letters of Paul, the letters of Peter, if you're reading any of those letters and you see the passage as it says in Scripture, or as it is written, that's meaning the Tanakh. And sometimes it actually means Talmudic literature like the Midrash and the oral uh, teachings of Halakha and things like that. The Talmud and the Midrash basically is the way you would say that. So yeah, that that's totally a thing. <laughs> like praying before you eat, that's not written in the written Torah. That's in the commentary to the Torah, the oral Torah, Talmud and the Midrash. If you have the Baal HaTorah, which is a humash, uh, on the Torah, this is the five books of Torahs considered to be a humash. So any sefer, any book that you have that only has the first five books is known as a humash, coming from the word uh, hamash or hamishi, which is the word for five. And uh, that's the first five books. So in the Baal HaTurim humash, you have in Deuteronomy chapter 8, 
specifically verse 10, because that's the that's the verse that commands us to bless God after we eat our food. You're originally supposed to pray after you eat. It's only because of the rabbis that we pray before we eat. So therefore, when we find people saying grace before they eat food, they're already saying that we accept upon ourselves to some extent the teachings of the rabbis, the traditions that were lost when the Torah got translated. As we're reading here, that now any person, even a non-Jew, could read it and interpret it as they wished with no proper commentaries or explanations and tra- and no tradition to guide them. This is why you see that there are a bunch of made-up commentaries, and yes, harsh word, it's made up on anything in the Tanakh, and especially on Matthew through Revelation, which, by the way, Matthew through Revelation was not the original proposal. That was something that was settled on at a later time. Cannot say that enough. I have a series on my podcast um, archives that is called Egeret to the Romans. If you can listen to the the um, the preface or the introduction, that gives all that information. It is super rich to know, like all these different backgrounds and connections. But there's a lot of made up things, and this is a big, big problem. For instance, still on page 402, it says the New Testament was written in Greek by mostly simple Greek-speaking Jews who were led astray by false interpretations and who learned their Torah from false interpretations and who learned their Torah from the Septuagint. So this is another problem that most of, well, pretty much all of it, if not most of it for sure, Most of it, if not all of it, is directly coming from the Septuagint. Now, if you go back to the beginning of this podcast, all the way back up to this point, do you see the problem? The problem is there's a text out there that's being used to pretty much freak out the masses because it there there really isn't a lot of love there. Sometimes it can come from love, I guess. But if you think about the ultimate, um, if you don't accept JC, you're, you're in a lot of trouble and you're considered to be pitied because you're waiting on a savior. Like that's one of many things, you know, there's a big fear uh, of, with that. So when your message is based off of fear, based off of freaking people out, bothering people and uh, really putting people in these terrible predicaments, that's a problem. Anyway, um, now you have that all that information comes from a translation that has a lot of information missing. Because, again, when the Septuagint was brought forth, traditions explanations, commentaries, proper commentaries, okay, like like uh, the Marhasha, the <laughs> the Sifre, the Sifte, Chakamim, you know, like the Makilta, I'm talking like all these different commentaries on the Torah and the Tanakh, like gone, Medzudot, 
you know, what are these names? Some people don't even know these names. So all of that is being used as teaching tools. And you're just like, you come to this predicament that says there are many words, ambiguous and unclear. So this made many words ambiguous and unclear. The classic case being the distinction between young lady and virgin. You know who we're talking about? <laughs> Mary, which is funny because that's not even her name. And it's interesting, like most people got their names translated correctly, but not Mary and not Yeshua. Like, okay, what's going on? <laughs> anyway, because um, they even called Joshua Joshua in the English. They never referred to him as JC because, you know, Yeshua has the same name as Joshua. Like, it is the same name. Yeshua is short for Yehoshua, which is Joshua. So Yehoshua, Yeshua should be Joshua in English. So like, do you ever think about how sus that is? <laughs> but anyway, um, so calling Miriam a, a young lady or a virgin, and that being a great, great argument, just type in Virgin Mary and uh, was she a virgin or was she a young maiden? And you're going to get a whole bunch of stuff. <laughs> but that's because of the Septuagint. If you had translations from the Tanakh, and if there wasn't just a simple Greek rendering of the text, this would not exist. So that's that's where we're in. We're in this flow right now of this. So what's up with the Tenth of Tibet? Tenth of Tibet is connected to Tishabav. Now I'm on page 403 because it commemorates the temple's destruction. And it says that it's meant to teach us the sequence of how the second temple's destruction came about. So during the second temple period, it says the Septuagint, then Christianity, and shortly after the temple's destruction and the start of the long and bitter exile of the Jewish people. Now, you have this fact of a little bit down the page. It is terribly ironic that instead of transforming Jerusalem into the most illustrious city in the world, which is what's going to happen when the Messiah comes, by the way. So the fullness of the revelation of the Messiah. Yes, there's a whole Ben Yosef, a, a, a Messiah who descends from Joseph. There's a whole section of that which begins to fill some of the, the first part of the mission of the Messiah, which is number one, to return people to God. Some of that's already happened. The end gathering, supposed to gather in the exiles, that's supposed to happen. So when Yeshua said, I came to seek and save the lost, obviously uh, when Jerusalem was plowed over and there was the great expulsion from Jerusalem, uh, that was a problem because now you got to restart the, the end gathering process again. But in the meantime, people have the opportunity to repent and return to God, which is something that's been available all the time. And by the way, with the fullness of the revelation of the Messiah, that's supposed to go away. People are not going to have that opportunity. Now is the time. But anyway, so you kind of see where this is like, oh, yeah, so maybe JC is not the Messiah. It's what's well, a lot deeper than that. So with the Messiah coming, there's supposed to be this huge transformation in the consciousness of mankind 
they're going to turn and look to Jerusalem and be like, that's where we need to go. We need to go to the temple. The third temple comes, shines light all over the entire world. Jerusalem expands. Israel encompasses the world, not in a literal sense, but there's a whole thing that happens with a beautiful transformation. So think about that in light of what happened during 10th of Tibet in the first century. Because we're saying on page 403, Garments of Light, Volume 2, instead of transforming Jerusalem into the most illustrious city in the world, as the Tanakh prophesies about the Messiah, the arrival of JC led instead to the city's horrific desecration and destruction so soon after. Now, obviously, part of it is our fault because there were some 24 different sects of dividing Jews in Jerusalem. A lot of infighting. There was not unity. There was not Hine Matova Manayim on a, on a, uh, the majority. That was not the thing. That was not the case, which in order for the redemption to, to take effect, there needs to be unity, which is why one of the reasons as a Avenger, that is like my heartbeat to be unified. Have your differences of opinion, have your differences of observance, your perspectives and things like that. But when it comes down to it, we need to be unified and serving Hashem. Okay. Like have your your different whatever's you know like but when it comes down to it shema yisrael and ahavat yisrael you need to be loving your neighbors you love yourself we're not going to agree on everything that's fine <laughs> but we do need to know that hashem is one there is no other and we need to serve him and there are many people who have uh Let's see, different different ways that they pray, uh, different orders of service. Uh, there's different beliefs in who the Messiah is and who he could be. Again, we're discussing some of the deepest part of the Torah when we're talking about who is the Messiah, really. How many hours do you have? You know, like that, need, that really needs to be the question because you're going to have to discuss that out. But what we can bring it down to is this is why the Rambam is used because it simplifies it, brings all these tangents down to brass tacks, if you will. We can work with that. <laughs> Bring it down to six-fold mission. All right, let's go. Did these boxes get checked? You know, so those kinds of things. Um, you know, so there's different styles. People have different ways that they, they teach and different ways that they learn. Uh, different books that they use, different parts of Torah. Like, is it more of the 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 Agada, the Agadic stories? Is it more the Medrash? Is it more the Halakha? You know, uh, those different things. Is it just the plain text itself without the commentary? You know, uh, because even with a Humash, that's the safest route to go. Keep it simple with the plain text, you know. Um, so those kinds of things, there's... And there's different people who have, you know, like there's uh, Chabad, there's Breslev, there's uh, different groups of people, you know, like those are the big ones. But I don't know if uh, I don't know of all of them. But if you just think about all of that, the, the spectrum and then you have the people who are 
not even observant and not even Jewish, you know, which are those are all different categories. When we can all unify, that's what we're talking about. Because, again, the Zadikim, the Benonim and the Reshaim, which, by the way, part of the Mashiach's arrival is that there will be no more Benonim, which if you think about that, you're left with either Zadikim or Reshaim. And Zadikim starts with a Sadi. Reshaim starts with a Resh. Sadi Resh is the root of the word Zur, which is the rock. So you have a rock. And we do know that there are two types of rocks. There's the rock, hard, heart. And then there's the rock, the foundation stone that people can build up their faith on with uh, strength and security, reinforcement and those kinds of things. But then if you reverse those letters, because hopefully the Rashaim can become Zadikim, that's the greatest miracle ever, is when a person can overcome their Yetzirah, their evil inclination, overcome the evil within themselves. Like when, when everybody's doing that, by the way, that's how the whole world becomes redeemed, or let's use the term saved, because that's really what we need to do. We need to save the world. That happens because we overcome the evil in ourselves. We overcome our evil, the world becomes by default less evil. And when you look at the Resh, the Reshaim, to the Sadi, the Zadikim, that, that's the root rots or rots, as in ratso show run and return, right? So rots means to like run. It's also the root of the word radzon, which means will. The will of Hashem really is that that we would serve him in, in spirit and truth, that we would we would turn from evil and do good. That's why the sages tell us that everything is in the hands of heaven except the fear of heaven. You have a choice whether or not you will serve Hashem. So um, to just kind of finish this point on the tenth of Tibet, commemorating the destruction of the second temple, because that really is when we were led into our current predicament that we're in and what has happened during this time let's go back down to our our ironic statement about instead of jerusalem being transformed with the with the coming of jc it was actually a, a destruction pit i'm using those terms on my own but it says the arrival of JC instead led to the city's horrific desecration and destruction so soon after. And while he may be famous for preaching peace, his religion led to the slaughter of more people than any other movement in history. It's like, what? You know, and he also himself said, I didn't come to bring peace, but to bring a sword. And that was to divide up the household. Now, without commentary, what does that even mean? Because if you look at paper, <laughs> the historical archive, uh, yeah, he surely did bring a sword. Constantine sword, as a matter of fact. Uh, the crusade sword, as a matter of fact and all sorts of other horrible things that happen spain and other areas uh even the holocaust that 
that religion's doctrine and dogma, hard to say, was used to uh, spark the Holocaust. Ouch. So, uh, so yeah, hopefully things are better these days, but, uh, this is the hard things that this time frame of what we're in now is that's what we're walking through. We're walking through fixing that and overcoming that some hard stuff. And that's in the world and also within ourselves. So it says that the 10th of Tibet with all of that being the case and this, this huge buildup and why we have the eighth and the ninth wrapped into the 10th of Tibet, which is the main day that we use to fast, which by the way, this is when the heavenly court opens the case and says, do we approve of the, the temple being built now? You know, like do, do, does this generation merit the building of the temple? So hopefully a week ago we merited it and, we're still working on it to some extent, but all that to say is it says this is the day where we remember all the countless victims of centuries of inquisitions, crusades, pogroms, persecutions, and Holocaust. And that was because this person was said to, to spark this religion. Now, for those of us who are followers of Yeshua, and I want to be correct here in, in understanding what that means. That means we're, we're being instructed through the teachings that he gave us. Like, let's really look at it for what it is, because like it gets lost in the terminology of like, do you believe in Yeshua? Like, are you Yeshua centered, you know, and all these kinds of things. And it's like, okay, so what does that mean? What is it supposed to mean? <laughs> you know, so what did he teach us? You know, the, the portion of the, the Basora that was read this past Shabbat was talking about, you call me master and you call me teacher. But, you know, you're true in saying that, but there's people here who are not with that. And that's why I use the term Admor, which is Adonenu, uh, Morenu, Rabenu, like our, our Lord, our teacher, our master. And it's an acronym, Admor. And many people were called Admor in the Hasidic, uh, realm of things. And we call Moshe, Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses, our master. And he's considered to be the pinnacle of everything. And remember, Yeshua says that if you can't get with Moshe's mastership, you aren't going to even deal with me, which is just letting you know that many people who claim this Yeshua guy if it's disconnected from Moshe Rabbeinu, that should tell you everything you need to know. And I'm one of many people who are here to say, whatever that was, <laughs> that's done. It's over. It's been over for a while, but it's really over now. And in my life and, and other people's lives who are doing this and coming to step up to this call and being aware that this is 
this is why we have superpowers and we need to be using them. <laughs> Welcome to the flex zone. Uh, that's the thing. Yeshua is not separate from Moshe Rabbeinu. And that's up for debate and that's fine. But if you really look at what he taught us, he taught us that we need to be linked with Moshe Rabbeinu. We don't need to be <clears throat> Sleek eye. I'm even allergic to it. I'm allergic to saying that. <laughs> um, you know, because I didn't come to abolish the Torah. If your righteousness doesn't exceed that of the Pharisees and the scribes, like that's going to be a problem. What? You know, like you ever think about these things? Depart from me. I never knew you. You workers of lawlessness. Like you, you people who didn't keep the mitzvot. You people who weren't observant those things uh yeah he said statements like that so like what is the deal with thinking he started a new religion he kills jews he causes exile like no <laughs> that is not not the right story but it is a story and that's fine so the main thing I wanted to really just mention with this is that we're working to this and getting Bezrat Hashem to Purim. And we're going to have a little stop at Tuba Shabbat, which is about planting trees. And it's so beautiful when you look at planting trees, because that's a picture of mankind. We're likened to trees. And this is where the parable of the seeds and the parable of the soil that Admor Yeshua taught, you know, those Take those things in. Those are some good Tuba Shabbat teachings that we should really just kind of, you know, get planted in because that's that's a thing. Even in one of the letters of Shaul, he said that, you know, you should be rooted in the teachings that you were brought up with. Well, if a person knew who Yeshua was, what was he rooted in? What did he spend his time doing as a child and growing into an adult? It was Torah. He sat with the sages. He was a part of the Torah discussions. Like temple service was a thing. He didn't just go to the temple to wait for it to be destroyed. So, um, but yeah, that's where we're at in, in Parsha Shemot. Where did we stay planted as a people so that God had people to come redeem? We stay planted in our traditions, our explanations of Torah handed down to us by our forefathers. We kept our Hebrew names. We kept our way of dress. We kept our language. So that's what we need to be working towards. And Bezrat Hashem, Mashiach now.